Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer. Well, he's back. Benjamin Netanyahu is once again Israel's prime minister, this time leading an unprecedented far-right religious coalition. How did he do it? And how will this sixth Netanyahu government be radically different from the past five Netanyahu governments? Here to explore these questions, as well as to take a look at what Netanyahu has done with, as of this recording, nearly his first full week in office, is my colleague, the ultimate Bibiologist, Anshel Pfeffer. Anshel is senior columnist at Haaretz. He's the co-host of the popular Election Overdose podcast, which was produced during the past two elections here. And most relevant to this conversation, he is the author of Bibi, The Turbulent Life and Times of Benjamin Netanyahu. Hi, Anshel. Hey, Alison. How are you uh, faring with the new government? <laughs> so far, so good. So when you chose that subtitle for your book, did you have any clue you would be foreseeing a year of exile into the political desert for Netanyahu and then a triumphant comeback? Well, it's not his first triumphant comeback. It's just one of uh, a series of uh, triumphant comebacks in his 40 years of uh, of public career and um, still no sign uh, of any end. So not surprised. Sorry. I want to deep dive into Netanyahu's comeback. But first, let's talk about today's headlines, which one might say is Bibi's first real standoff with his key coalition partner, Itamar Ben-Gvir, our new national security minister. So Ben-Gvir declares he's going to visit the Temple Mount, the site of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, after making campaign promises that he's going to change the status quo there, allowing Jewish prayer on the Mount. Netanyahu's office leaks that Ben-Gvir will be postponing his visit at the prime minister's request. No sooner does that news hit the airwaves when, boom, we find out that Ben-Gvir is already up on the Temple Mount. It takes place in the early morning. There's no press coverage. It lasts for 12 minutes. So how do you interpret this little game of who's the boss that we witnessed? Well, for a start, there's no such thing as having an event with no press coverage now. There were not. There were no journalists there, but... We knew about it. People were already taking photographs of of Ben for the moment he stepped on Temple Mount, and it was it was online and it was on the radio, and we were all getting push. Those of us who were awake were all getting push alerts by then. This is very much a media thing. He's making it look like, no, I went there for his prayer and for private contemplation and so on. Ben Gvir was there to make a point. He is not going to change who he is. He's going to continue acting in this irresponsible, pyromaniacal way. Now, it doesn't mean necessarily this is going to cause an immediate escalation. The various Palestinian factions, Hamas and uh, Islamic Jihad, they have their own agendas. They have their own timing. If they want to use this as an excuse to launch a mini escalation or whatever. Right. Hamas is already will. spinning it as a triumph for them because it was the short 12 minute low key visit as opposed to pomp and circumstance and, you know, big press coverage, etc. You know, Hamas is saying, look, we scared him into doing this mini visit instead of a big visit. Yeah, Hamas uh, will spin everything that's ever happened since the foundation of the organization as a great victory as they knew about that. But the fact that Bengvir, who is now one of the most powerful men in Israel, he's control of the police, he's got new powers under the Bengvir law, which was passed last week, and is also going to be, at some point at least, uh, that's what that's what the coalition agreements are promising him, a national guard which will be made up of the border police. So he'll, he'll be in charge of two massive internal security organizations, and yet he is doing what everybody knows is 
the most provocative thing you can do in this region, and that's going up uh, as a prominent Israeli figure to Temple Mount. Now, what what this means for whatever's going to happen in Israeli-Palestinian conflict in, in, in the near future, that's one issue that, let's, let's set that aside for a moment. What does this tell us about the relationships within the new Israeli government? Netanyahu is a very risk-averse person. We know that. He has never been very interested in Temple Mount. He's for best of my knowledge, he's never been there. He's never put out major statements about this. This is the kind of thing that Netanyahu, who is at the end of the day a secular nationalist and not someone who feels this huge uh, attraction to whatever the Temple Mount symbolizes to the, for, those, for those who find that kind of thing important. It's not his show. He's not interested in it. He'd much prefer for that not to distract him from what to him are the, are the big issues. He doesn't need Bengvir going there when he's starting to reestablish his ties with the Americans, when he's working out what his policies are vis-a-vis Russia-Ukraine, where he wants to make, as always, a, a lot of noise about Iran. It's it's a distraction that he doesn't need. So what did they decide yesterday? Look, I wasn't there in the meeting. I don't think that Netanyahu had much choice. I think that, that Benjamin made it clear to him that he's not going to stop going there. And if Netanyahu tries to prevent him from doing it, it'll look bad for both of them. And this is probably the best Netanyahu could get, a, a low-key, almost surprise visit, because they were briefing yesterday that Benjamin's visit to that Temple Mount will take place perhaps in the next few weeks. So it caught everyone napping, basically. And then he was there first thing this morning. This was probably the best that they, that, that both sides would get. Benguer has made his point. He's been up. And nothing happened, at least, while he was there. Netanyahu can, like, I don't know if he'll even say so publicly, but now they, they, they can say, well, you know, his government allows things to happen and he's not going to be weak uh, to Hamas. And this may be an event that in a few days we'll, we'll have forgotten already. This is Benguer undercutting Netanyahu's authority. Netanyahu had no choice, and I think that this is the, what, what this government is going to look like. The tail wagging the dog. It's very much a tail wagging the dog, and it's very much Netanyahu trying to make it look like that's not the case. So whether it's Benguer now and other partners in uh, we've seen already, and we're going to see much more in the next few weeks doing whatever the heck they want, that's this new government. So the headlines after an agonizing seven weeks of negotiations of the first week of the new government were mostly who gets what, who's in place, all of the changes in the ministerial positions. When you looked at the results of these uh, coalition negotiations, what do you conclude about Netanyahu's decision-making, his negotiating skills? The popular wisdom was that it shows that he's incredibly weak. Well, at the end of the day, Netanyahu had to get his feet under the desk. He needed to get back into office. And that was the aim of all this long, laborious period of um, of coalition negotiations. Now, Netanyahu was in a very unique situation uh, vis-a-vis the parties that he was dealing with, is that he had no alternative. Every coalition negotiation passed in Israel the prime minister or the prospective prime minister someone to negotiate against had various uh, alternatives various parties that he could choose uh, or she in the one case that we've had a female prime minister to choose to um, to sit with in the next coalition parties that, that they could that could stay out parties that could come in parties that there was some kind of a leeway with Netanyahu had no uh, alternative here because all the parties f- to the left or from center left to, uh, to uh, of Likud had vetoed him. They're not going to sit with a with a prime minister who's facing uh, criminal charges. For his majority, he needed 
all the parties to his right and all the, all the Haredi parties. So there wasn't really any leeway here. So it wasn't negotiation in the sense that Netanyahu had any choice. Netanyahu, all he could do was to try and somehow build this jigsaw puzzle. I mean, when you get a jigsaw puzzle, you have a, a thousand pieces there. You need to use all those pieces and you can't. You don't have extra pieces and you can't leave any pieces out. The, he had to use all the pieces that, the, that were there and to somehow fit them together and to give and to slice ministries. Slice some pieces up into half pieces. And <laughs> to invent new, uh, new titles and obviously squeezing in at the end the Likudniks who, who who got the leftovers that w which were left after this pillage of uh, of the partners. I don't really see any way in which it could have been very different. And, and, and the real question is not what Netanyahu did in the coalition negotiation. That's not really surprising. It's a coalition agreement is not a law. It's an agreement between two sides which then will either be enacted in policy or will be legislated and so on. But as you said a moment ago, is it worth even the paper it's written on? Most coalition agreements aren't fully uh, implemented. This probably will be the case as well. And Netanyahu will say at various points, well, you know, this law that we said will will legislate, yes, but in the next session, this uh, change in policy, let's set up a committee. Uh, here, here's some money you know, to, to take some funding for you, for your schools or your shivas or whatever. The real question here is what this government will do now, and we're getting a taste of it now with what we saw with Ben Gvir on Temple Mount is that the ministers will start to treat their departments, their powers very much as their personal fiefdoms. And can Netanyahu really stop Ben Gvir doing things with the police? That's, that's the real question. And we'll see similar things happening with Smotrich in the finance ministry and with uh, Golknoff in the housing ministry. And Smotrich with his piece of the defense ministry, which uh, gives him power over the West Bank. Yeah, and and, and there he's suddenly uh, in confrontation with Yoav Gallant, the actual defense minister. So we're going to have this kind of barons, each using their own uh, powers and their own forces and their own private militias almost that, that they're going to have at, the, at their hands. And... Will Netanyahu be able to somehow herd them together? I just saw an interview that he did a, a couple of weeks ago just before becoming prime minister where he talked about a book that he recently read about George Washington. And he talked about how George Washington had herded cats in his cabinet and he couldn't. He had to contend with these, all these uh, great figures that of the you know, US and American, I'm sure, you know, all those names of the founding uh, Fathers? Father, founding fathers, yeah. yes. So it was really fascinating to see Netanyahu waxing lyrically about uh, about having read these books about Washington. So he spent a few months reading biographies of George Washington. And then, okay, so Netanyahu's talking about how Washington managed to get all these geniuses to work together for, for, a, for a common cause. And then now, what's Netanyahu going to do with the geniuses, right, geniuses he has in his own cabinet? But all these fears, you know, about authoritarianism, urbanization, you know, going far right. Netanyahu right now doesn't have the strength, really, to be this kind of popular authoritarian leader in the Putin-Orban. So on the one hand, Netanyahu doesn't really have that kind of authority over his ministers. But the ministers who have been appointed to, to almost all the ministries are people who very much would like to see urbanization. So Netanyahu gave Yariv Levin the justice minister. We know Yariv Levin's plans. He's never made a secret of them. Yariv Levin wants to eviscerate the Supreme Court and make it totally dependent on the, on the politicians. That, that's urbanization, for example. And Netanyahu's not going to stop him. So what's the... It's no longer Netanyahu. I mean, this is this, this is the sixth Netanyahu government, but this is the government which which you have the least control over because he doesn't really have 
any way to discipline his ministers, even the ones within Likud, because anybody can now uh, create some kind of a fuss and cause trouble for Netanyahu. This is not a regular coalition. Netanyahu does not have a fallback. He can't go to another party and say, will you replace? I mean, perhaps maybe Benny Gantz in a few months after spending a long, cold winter on the benches of opposition, maybe he'll change his tunes and somehow uh, uh, be prepared to replace the Smotriches and uh, and Benkvis of this government. That's not the case right now. So he's got all these people who can do basically whatever the heck they want in his uh, in his cabinet. And it's right, he's not the kind of authoritarian figure that we talk about when we talk about someone like Orban or Putin or so on. But these people are not liberals who are going to be acting again. I mean, we used to have those in Netanyahu's cabinets. There was always these kind of powers bouncing out each other from the right and the left. There is no counterbalance. Systematically weeded them all out. No, then we'll sit with him. I think he'd be happy to have them in his, his, some of them right now in his cabinet. But he doesn't have them here. And also, there's those who say that this is actually what Netanyahu wants. And now, editor in chief Alf Ben just wrote a piece last week saying this is the real Netanyahu. This is what Netanyahu always wanted to do. I'm not 100 percent sure this is what Netanyahu always wanted to do. But it doesn't really matter. This is what he's got. He has these ministers who are more powerful than ministers have ever been in his in a Netanyahu government. It's interesting that. The previous government, the Bennett Lapid government, we had a similar kind of situation because there also there there was certainly no prime minister who had enough power to rein in ministers of other parties. But I think the ministers of the previous government were a lot more cautious than at least the rhetoric of the ministers of this government. Now, what will they do the moment they become ministers? I mean, the real question here is what will Bengvir do when he's suddenly faced with the responsibilities of ministers? Okay, so. This morning, uh, Temple. You mean Mark, like he, the first big uprising or riot or etc. Even before that, you know, he's going to see budgets and 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 personnel issues. That stuff he's never de- dealt with. Ben Gvir, the most, the, the biggest organization he's ever had to uh, run is a tiny law office. You know, him and a couple of associates, perhaps, and a secretary. Now he's in charge of a massive uh, uh, organization, a number of organizations. Not it's not just police. He's in charge of the prison services, firefighters, uh, and so on. I mean, let's take one issue that Bengvi always talks about, that the summer camp uh, conditions in prisons for, for, for Palestinian terrorists is something that Bengvi talk, talks about all the time, and now it's going to end. He's going to sit down, perhaps he already has, but he's only going to, do it, he's only going to have a number of meetings in the next few weeks with the senior uh, leadership of, Israel, of the Israeli prison service. And he's going to say to them, I want no more you, summer camp. No more televisions and no more uh, uh, studying and whatever. And he's going to come with a long list of things that he wants to make life much much tougher for uh, for the security prisoners in, in Israeli prisons. And they're going to say to him, "Okay, but when we do this, we're going to have a massive riot, a series of riots in the various in the various prisons." And we don't have this. We we just don't have the manpower or the woman power, whatever you want to call it, to uh, to deal with these uh, with with these rights. I mean, that's the real reason why there's a sort of like silent agreement between the prisoners and the <laughs> and the jailers on what kind of conditions life inside is going to have to keep people, everybody happy, and to keep things calm. And they're going to say, "Look, fine, you know, you can tell us from now on, now on the policy is." Life is going to be much tougher there. Do you have a thousand more officers to give us when the next, when the riot breaks out? And th- and at that point, will Bengvir basically be a pyromaniac and say, 
great. You know, I want to see these riots. This is this totally works for my agenda. Or will he suddenly become more responsible? Now we've seen it time and again. People in office sometimes are more pragmatic. Will we, will we see a new Ben Gavir? I, I I really wouldn't want to put any bets on it, but we're going to have to find. We'll find out in the next few weeks. So back to Bibi for a minute. You said that the alliance support of Ben Gvir was, quote, the most obvious proof that Netanyahu would do anything to get back in office. As the guy who wrote the book, to do anything, why? Because of his visceral need to be prime minister or in order to save his skin legally? And if you're going to say both, I want to know which one predominates. Netanyahu does not have a life outside politics. He's, he doesn't have he can he can't conceive of waking up in the morning and not being briefed by the by the head of Mossad and the head of Shin Bet. He did it for uh, a year. And it was and, and it was torture. He did it for a year and a half. It was total torture for him. He hated every minute of it. And even though he you know, he went off to a fancy holiday in Hawaii and that it, it it was no compensation for him. He has no life outside this. And the legal issues are are there as well he wants to have you know, he doesn't want to have to pay millions and millions in, in legal fees and he he's aware that the, 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 the conviction could have also um implications but it sounds like you don't think that's his prime motivator here look if netanyahu wanted if the main issue was to get off the hook netanyahu could have signed a plea bargain with uh, the previous attorney general uh, avichai mendelblit in which he would have accepted clearly the moral turpitude uh element of a conviction which would have meant that he for seven years he couldn't have run for office he would have accepted that that was something he could he, he simply could not live with he 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 prefers to take the risk of the, of, a, of an ongoing trial but to be able to to continue to 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 try and get back into office and like we saw it like you know he did everything possible to get back and now he's back let's take netanyahu at his word netanyahu says that his job is to keep Israel safe and he believes that he's the only person who can do that. He's personified himself as as the embodiment of, of Israel and as the only person who can guarantee Israel's existence almost. And he, that's what he gets up in the morning. That's what he thinks he's doing. I mean, it's, you, know, you need a massive, massive overbloated ego to believe that you're the only person who can keep a country alive. But that's what, he, that's what he thinks, and that's what he gets up to do, and he doesn't know anything else. How do you expect this to work with the trial ongoing? What moves do you expect from him as prime minister? What do you see as his legislative priorities, either clearly motivated by him or he's going to have his you know, coalition partners introduce him? Oh, it wasn't my idea. It was their idea. How, how is that going to work, and what kind of um, laws do you think he's going to want passed, which will somehow uh, be his get-out-of-jail-free card? Well, there isn't a get-out-of-jail-free card. There are a number of things that could lead uh, uh, to an erosion of the charges. The, the only way that charges could really be abandoned is that for the attorney general to say, I'm revisiting this and therefore I'm ordering the prosecutors and the prosecutors work for the... Uh, well, the attorney general is the boss of the prosecutors. And he, 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 a new attorney general, um, I don't think this attorney general will do it because she's an appointment of the previous uh, uh, government and she's not someone who's going to do that. But in theory, an attorney general could tell the prosecutors to notify the court that they are suspending the case because they need to revisit some of the things, they need to check something, and then that's yeah. That's that could, his easiest move to replace the attorney general and get one who will do that. Is that the easiest move? It's not it's not a simple thing to, to replace the attorney general. It's only been done once by a government and the attorney general could always take the government to to, to the high court 
and say that it's being done to for, for the wrong reasons and, and the High Court could notionally order the government to, to keep the Attorney General. I don't think he's, he wants to take it th that way. And, and also, I'm not sure that there is, just like that, somebody who could be appointed to Attorney General who will go and on the first day suspend the trial. But that is an option. It's something that certainly Netanyahu is considering. I don't, I, that's sort of a nuclear option. I don't think he'll do that. There is uh, the possibility that other proxies within the Likud will um, float the uh, removal of the uh, of a breach of uh, trust and fraud uh, clause and from the, make it no longer a crime and therefore basically there's no crime three of the four main charges will no longer there's exist no in the crime, there's no crime there's no there still will, will be the bribery of case 4000 but that's you know, that's always going to be the most difficult one to uh, to, to pin on to Netanyahu but i think what, he doesn't need necessarily for one of these big developments to happen. What he's doing is quietly he's eroding, so he's eroding the public's trust in, in the case, which is also going to be difficult to maintain in such a long and complex case because it can be spun so easily in so many different ways. We've been told time and time and time again that the cases have collapsed. They're still there and they're still you know, the, the case is still ongoing. And you know, if you listen to, if you read uh, Giddy Weitz and, and other legal commentators in the Aritz, they'll explain to you very clearly why the case is still very strong again until now and the fact that there have been a few minor setbacks to the prosecution haven't changed that. So I think what Netanyahu wants to do is, first of all, create a public atmosphere that this case is, is irrelevant and it's and it's no longer uh, conclusive, if it ever was. And by just by coming back into office, he's achieved part of that because basically people are looking at... And even, and even Ronnie Alshech, who was the police commissioner who spearheaded the the investigations again Netanyahu said a few days ago basically it's it, it turns out that we're not prepared to put a serving prime minister on trial now he's the guy who stood behind the charges and he still believes it. he's not saying the charges are wrong he still thinks Netanyahu uh, should have been put on trial but he's right in a sense he, he's got a good point because he's saying Al Sheikh is saying that a serving prime minister suddenly one who's been re-elected is someone who's received a, cer a, a certain type of mandate and it's very difficult for a court to challenge it. He's not saying that the court shouldn't be challenged. He's saying that maybe the Israeli public isn't ready for that situation. And we haven't had a situation before because in the previous the previous prime ministers who who were facing indictment, Eld Olmert and before that Yitzhak Rabin in, in, in 77 with the, with, with the illegal dollar account, they both resigned before being in. Well, Rabin was not indicted because he resigned, and they reached a, a, a deal. And Olmert was only indicted after you know, when he was a, when he was a, a private citizen. He was he, he resigned before being indicted. Now, the situation where a prime minister has brazened it out, been charged as a prime minister. Just remember, the Netanyahu trial began when when Netanyahu was prime minister the previous time, and he was in court as prime minister. Only afterwards did he lose. Uh, power and he didn't lose power because of the court. He lost power because of, they managed to put up together this coalition, which replaced him. And now he's again prime minister. So it's almost as if the fact that the man is standing on trial for bribery and fraud, massive case in the Jerusalem District Court, going on for years, is totally irrelevant to what's happening in his political career. You say he's breaching public trust, and the public trusts him enough to elect him prime minister, right? Looking from the domestic to international for a while, because Bibi does consider himself a master diplomat. You've been covering the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Uh, Putin was one of the first leaders to call and congratulate Netanyahu. We've seen uh, in the recent few days uh, Netanyahu loyalist Eli Cohen say that Russia should not be criticized publicly.
publicly and he was uh, returned with pushback from none other than Senator Lindsey Graham in the Senate saying that that was a, a regrettable uh, statement. Do you see some sort of big change in Israel's position when it comes to Russia, Ukraine because of the return of Netanyahu? Eli Cohen is foreign minister by name only. He foreign policy is, is decided by Netanyahu and Israel's main diplomats will be Netanyahu, Ron Dermer, who is the got the, the empty title of uh, strategic affairs minister. But basically he's he's gonna, the real foreign minister. He's the real foreign minister. Also, Tzachia Negbi, who's been appointed head of the National Security Council, will have also quite a, a major part in that because there's, there's stuff that Ron Dermer can't do, like talk to the Democrats <laughs> in the US. I think Tzachia Negbi will be sent to do that in his new role as head of National Security Council. So Eli Cohen, at the best, is perhaps Israel number number four representative. He doesn't make foreign policy. When, what Eli Cohen said was certainly something Netanyahu told him to say. Basically, I'm assuming this, but it seems pretty clear. Netanyahu kind of told him, take a step back from what your predecessor, who's not just Prime Minister, Yair Lapid, who was, the free, who was Foreign Minister for the last 18 months. Netanyahu's order to Eli Cohen is to differentiate himself from Yair Lapid, take a step back, say we're not going to make too many statements on this. But that actually helps Netanyahu and gives him room now to maneuver. Netanyahu could be less pro-Russia and less pro-Putin as he was in the past. He has two main reasons to do so. First of all, the war in Ukraine means that the, the American administration really is is adamant that Israel will be more critical and have it, you know, be more distant from Putin. So this is something that he can deal with with the United States. He certainly has certainly has a bargaining chip with the Biden administration and said, look, you guys maybe don't like my policy on the Palestinians. Maybe you don't want to be as tough on Iran as I want you to be. Here's something I can give you. I can be more, uh, you know, I can. But BB is supposed just, to be all about Iran. And now we've got a Russia-Iran and, and exactly. alliance. And, yeah. the, and that's the second thing that's changed and that, that Ru- Netanyahu can no longer make this big show about how he's getting Russia to support Israel against Iran and so on. Now we've got this Russia-Iran alliance that's out there. Netanyahu needs to find a new way to position himself. I don't think he wants to do it immediately. I think Netanyahu wants to buy time. So what Eli Cohen has done here is basically bought Netanyahu time. He said, we are now lowering our profile. We're no longer going to condemn Russia openly like we did in the last uh, uh, 10 months of uh, uh, of the uh, Russia-Ukraine war, he's not saying what that policy is. He didn't say we're going to be pro-Russia now. He, he said he's going to speak to Lavrov, but that also other Western leaders speak to Lavrov. And Lavrov are now both of them foreign ministers with, with very little power. But this this is what Netanyahu needs now because the one issue that Netanyahu is in charge of he's not in charge of internal security that's Ben-Gvir. he's not in charge of, of of the economy that's Smotrich and we can go on to many fields of of Israeli policy that Netanyahu has very little uh, power over now because of the coalition agreements the one thing that he does he does control is foreign policy and Eli Cohen is just a, he's a puppet there he's not he's not really he, he's not even a figurehead, really. Uh, and you know, obviously, the the, the, for, the the professional diplomats, the foreign ministry, are once again very depressed that they don't have a real minister and they're not going to have the same kind of role they had in the last 18 months under the Lapid-Bennett government. It goes back to Netanyahu running Israel's foreign policy through his plenipotentiaries, through through Derma mainly, through Anegbi. Maybe we'll see Yossi Cohen coming back soon. The rumors that him and Netanyahu aren't getting along as well as they used to do. And mainly Netanyahu himself. The foreign, the foreign minister is once again being bypassed and Eli Khan can make as many speeches as he wants. They're, they're meaningless. 
and on Russia-Ukraine. We'll have to wait and see for something more concrete to happen. And I don't think Netanyahu wants to announce that anytime very soon. He already had phone calls both with Zelensky and with Putin, and I'm sure he's trying to find a way to maneuver between them. So you wrote that what this government and the previous government have in common is that most Israelis are unhappy with it. And polls show that people who voted for Netanyahu wanted him as prime minister, but somehow hoped against all obvious signs that he would bring centrist partners into his government. And now they're disappointed in the government that they've got. Do you think that this kind of political grassroots discontent or maybe even discontent among his Likud members is going to have any kind of effect on Netanyahu? Well, the public only get their chance to to vote once, well, in Israel every year, uh, in elections. And the fact that the public are not that happy with this government. And the polls show that uh, the most recent poll was this weekend on Channel 12. Only 41% of Israelis think this is a good government. 49% think it's a bad government. 10% don't know. So what happened? Just a couple of months ago, they voted for the parties of of this government. Well, a tiny majority, but enough of a majority to give, give them a majority in the Knesset. So 10% of Israelis are unhappy now with, it, with, their, with their vote two months ago. Would they have voted differently? I think that, that that it's quite clear that there were, a, there were there was at least a certain proportion of voters who wanted Netanyahu to be prime minister, didn't want these uh, this specific coalition. Even Netanyahu said, especially the ultra orthodox elements, which are going to push re- issues yeah. of religion and state in a direction that they don't agree with. And and yet, even though Netanyahu said over and over again, these are the parties yeah, are going to exactly. be doing it. Exactly, it was uh, writing there, us on the wall. There was cer- there was a certain proportion of voters. Fully could who basically voted Netanyahu in the hope that Netanyahu was not telling them the truth, and I think Netanyahu was giving them a bit of a hit, a kind of a false hint mm-hmm. by not taking his photograph with Benvir throughout the uh, the campaign. I think it was pretty clear that Netanyahu was kind of trying to keep hope alive that he was just using Benvir, and actually, when the moment of truth would come, he wouldn't form a coalition with him. Now he has, and some Likudniks are not happy. Will this have any any influence on what's happening going forward? It's hard to see how it does because, once again, at the end of the day, you have a stark choice when when elections come and people wanted Netanyahu more than they wanted Yair Lapid. That, 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 that was for certain. On the other hand, and you just mentioned all these issues of state and religion and, and, and the way that some of the partners uh, are, have, uh, in a very, I think, you know, very rapacious way taken all these powers when it comes to stuff like educational programs and and, and social uh, uh, social affairs and so on. There is going to be a, a growing feeling that a minority is in charge. And these parties are minority. If you take the ultra-Orthodox and religious Zionism together, all together they, they won uh, about 24% of the votes. So they're a minority. And there are many Likudniks who voted for Netanyahu who don't like their their policies and Netanyahu understands this because if he didn't understand it he wouldn't have made such a big show in on Thursday when the new government was inaugurated of his new Knesset speaker Amir Ohana now right. there's never the first LGBT the first uh, openly gay uh, speaker, uh, Knesset Knesset speaker. Knesset, yeah. and what, they, they made a whole show of a party after the swearing of the government for the speaker which I don't remember ever happening and why did they? And and it was Bibi sitting there with Sarah and Amir Khan and Amir Khan's partner and Amir Khan's kids and Amir Khan's. Like they spent this half an hour celebrating a, a, a gay couple with kids, 
which is le- which is lovely. Right. But why would the Netanyahu- ultra orthodox uh, members of Knesset were looking down and turning their so, backs and, and some of them left? The, yeah, some of them left. But why was Netanyahu spending all this time celebrating the Ohana family when he had to go and chair his first cabinet <laughs> meeting? They postponed the first cabinet meeting of the new government for this. Celebration, celebration in the of, uh, yeah. uh, 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 and this was all because Netanyahu does understand that this minority, this fundamentalist minority in his new cabinet, it's risking his majority because there is a majority in Israel against Jewish fundamentalism. You can argue how big that majority is. You can argue how much of a priority this is for, 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 for Israelis. And yet the odds of, you know, Likud faction breaking away over this are zero. I don't think a Likud faction will break away over this, but this is part of Likud's constituency. Likud still has what you could call a, a nationalist liberal faction. There are still are, it's not It's no longer the, the majority of Likud voters, but maybe one in four or five Likudniks still are ha, have some uh, uh, affection for liberal ideas. And look, Amir Ochana, oh, you know, he, he is Israel's first gay Knesset speaker, and he's from Likud. So this there is within Likud a faction which is not necessarily uh, conservative in every single matter. So Netanyahu needs to keep them going. He sees Likud as being a big tent party, like the Republicans in America. He wanted to once call the Likud the Republicans as well. He needs to keep some of these factions. If not happy, then not they, they, quiet. Not not, not, to, not to scare them away. Yeah. There's no, there'll be another election. Netanyahu has no intention of not running in the next election whenever it's uh, whenever it's held, and he's always fighting. Netanyahu fights elections from election to election. He doesn't start when elections are called and when the Knesset is, is dissolved. He start. Netanyahu's already fighting the next election, and the signaling he, he's been doing with with Amir Ochana is not just for Americans to see actually oh how how gay friendly Israel is. It's very much for Israelis. Whenever they get to vote again, he doesn't want them to think that he's gone over to the Smart regime. So speaking of America, one pressure point that we already know won't really move Netanyahu is the diaspora. Or does he maybe actually care these days what liberal American Jews think? Because Biden's in the White House. We've got Tony Blinken, a liberal American Jew serving as secretary of state. Is he going to care at all about these sort of cries of dismay from the diaspora, this letter from the Jewish agency that was published the other day uh, expressing concern, et cetera, et cetera? Or is he going to treat it with the sort of the lack of concern that he's uh, shown towards diaspora worries in the past? Well, that's a great question. We certainly can say that when Trump was in the White House, Netanyahu couldn't give a shit for liberal American Jews. At this point, mid a democratic term where he's got at least two more years of Biden in the White House and a fair chance of another democratic uh, administration in uh, at the beginning of 2025 when he still plans to be uh, prime minister. He needs he does know that he needs to take their uh, their concerns more into consideration. However, he he hasn't got that much he he can do to take their concerns into consideration because at the end of the day his coalition partners come first. They're, they're, they're the priority. So what can Netanyahu do? He's tried to curb this uh, a group within the, within the coalition, including someone from, from within Likud who want to change the law of return, which is ba- would basically be the biggest fuck you to, uh, to non-Orthodox diaspora Jews, including the majority. That's the topic of the Jewish of, agency letter, right? To changing the grandfather clause yeah. and tightening the, the criteria for being able to come immigrate to Israel under the law of return. So, so, so that, you know, that would be a huge 
a negative message to the diaspora and it's something that he knows and and, he, and and that's why it's not in the uh there is no nothing official in the coalition agreements about changing the law of return that there is something about the committee that will uh, discuss and uh, and uh, various uh, p- potential changes so he's managed to tamp that down uh, that's something that he's been able to give to the, to the diaspora. He's appointed Amichai Shikli as the diaspora affairs minister. And Amichai Shikli is a hardcore nationalist who wouldn't sit sit for one minute in Bennett's government because there were there were Arabs there. And yet Amichai Shikli is also the son of a conservative rabbi, even though today he denies the fact that he himself belongs to the conservative movement because that's a death sentence in the Netanyahu's coalition. He still has those credentials. And that's the best Netanyahu has got to send to the diaspora right now. So if, as you have written, Israel transitioned from one unnatural government to another, both supported by a minority of Israelis, do you see this government really holding together long term? Do you see it maybe falling apart as soon as the the last one? And a related question, how's the sequel to your book going? There's not going to be a sequel to my book, unless, <laughs> you know, unless a publisher comes along and you know gives me five or uh, six figures uh, some Putting write, a hint out there in the universe to any uh, yeah, publishers. But, uh, but really, you know, I, I wrote one book about Netanyahu. I don't think I'm going to write another one. Uh, at least I, I don't want to write another one uh, right now. But very, very much the, the 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 longevity of this government is not so much over uh, policy issues. It's very much about the personal dynamics which, which are going to be within it. You've got these figures like Benkvir who have never really had to have the responsibility of being in government. All of a sudden, they're senior ministers they have uh, and 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 they hold the government's fate in their hands both in the actions that they'll that they'll carry out as ministers and in their ability to work as part of a, as part of a cabinet and like i said before we can't really foresee what someone like bengvir will do in this new situation he's now he's now the minister of national security this is that mrs itamar bengvir the thug who used to run not very long ago was running around the streets of Jerusalem uh, screaming death to Arabs and fighting with police now he's in charge of the police it's not just this crazy uh, terrifying uh, reversal of, uh, of, of of fortune for Bengvir it's it's suddenly this taking this man who's a radical and he's, uh, he's someone who's always been against the establishment and putting him at the heart of establishment if he can adapt and if somehow he can work together with the cabinet, then this government may last uh, longer than uh, the, than previous ones. And, you know, who knows, maybe two or three years even, which would, is eternity for an Israeli government. But there are so many uh, potential, um, not just for Ben but for some of the other figures, and, e- and even those who were who, who were loyal to Netanyahu, like the, the Haredi parties, they their appetites and their... The, the, their desires have been so boosted in, in the last couple of months of, of, of coalition agreements. You always have to somehow adjust your aim when you're in government because there's so many circumstances and so many uh, pragmatic decisions that need to be made. Will they be able to adjust now that they've kind of rushed into government, rushed into these new ministries with increased powers and increased funds when things are going to be more difficult, when there's going to be serious pressure from the Americans and Nintendo's going to say, tell Bengvir, now do not go up to uh, to Temple Mount. Or when there's a, an economic crisis and he'll have to say to the Haredim, sorry, I promised you another billion shekel for, for yeshivas, not going to be this year. What will happen then? 
and it's impossible to predict. Anshel Pfeffer, good luck continuing to write about Netanyahu, like it or not. <laughs> I would say that Netanyahu's fate lies in Ben Gvir's hands, but maybe all of our fates right now lie in uh, Ben Gvir's hands. Don't you want to leave something like more optimistic to <laughs> listeners before, before we go? We'll always have the podcast. We'll always have the podcast. And that wraps things up for this edition of Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to my producer, Amir Factor, and my editor, Nara Malkin. I'm Alison Kaplan-Summer. Until next week, Shalom from Tel Aviv. Thank you.